Well, we live in a new era. We live in a new era in so many ways. Um, but one of the great aspects of our era is that we can be in our homes right now and participate together. So I hope you will actually um, add some things to the chat over here um, because um, uh, both to share how you're doing, if you feel comfortable sharing how you're doing, to share thoughts or ideas you have on what we're talking about, if you want to do that, if you have things you want to add or ask. Um, as AJ said, due to the complexities of unmuting people and the technologies, we're going to keep folks on mute. So best to keep the questions over there and I'll do my best or thoughts over there and I'll keep that over, and I'll uh, attend to that after. My, my, my favorite part most definitely is the back and forth. And um, I see someone asking that they don't see the sources. The sources should all be there. Um, ah, unless somebody came into the chat later. So maybe AJ can send them out again for those who join later. Good point. Good point. Okay. So, uh, so friends, uh, I don't only want to do the cognitive intellectual stuff. I also want to kind of be together in this time of, uh, of turmoil and for many, uh, many are feeling quite joyful and many are feeling quite fearful. So I, I, I'd like to start with a little chant together, if you will. Um, and um, uh, AJ will post it again, but if you do have access to the sources on the side, it is what is labeled over there as uh, source four. It says source four. This is the little chant I want to do. And it's called a little bit of light dispels the darkness. And then I have the Hebrew and the Spanish as well. Thanks to my friend, Eddie, for the Spanish, um, who's also on here with us today. And, um, and what I want us to meditate on for this minute of chanting, if you're comfortable participating, is to think about both for others and for ourselves, how the world can be very dark externally and internally, but how very little actions, very little words, can actually light up a whole room that's dark. And the power of our little actions, our little words, and, um, and the power of being able to receive that from others as well. Because I do think that in addition to being a time for kindness for others, it's also a wonderful time to learn how to receive love that we, that, and support that we need as well. So here's how the chant goes. And feel free uh, to either read it along again, source four over there, or um, or to uh, um, or to close your eyes and just pick it up. Um, it, you can scroll upwards in the chat to find it, or AJ is posting it again. <clears throat> I'll start with the Hebrew. Meat men ha or. Doche harbe hoshech. Meat mehin ha or. Doche harbe hoshech. A little bit of light. Dispels the darkness. Un paquito de luz. 
Decipa la oscuridad. Meyat mehena or. Doche harbechoshech. And now join me without the words. Friends, join me in a little breathing. Just take a few seconds to uh, breathe out some anxiety and breathe in some light. So, as you can see on the side, AJ just shared some more sources in PDF form this time. Great to see you all. I'm going to continue to scroll through faces because a big source of my hope is seeing your faces and seeing your presence here. So, thank you for joining us. In, in a time of, um, in my short lifetime, um, certainly unparalleled anxiety and chaos and uncertainty. Um, and I think that one of the important opportunities right now is to think about how to remain positive and how to continue to cultivate gratitude in our lives, um, whether it's through taking walks or through our breathing exercises or through our phone calls or whatever we do and checking in on each other, checking in on people we love and also checking in on people who uh, may not feel loved out there or don't feel checked in on. And I want to think together, and again, I invite you to share in the, in the chat, how do we have hope? And what I mean by that is, how do we remain positive despite evidence that leads us to the negative, um, which can be significant? And yet this hope, this tikva, is something fundamentally different from, from faith. Right, faith in Hebrew, emunah, or trust, bitachon, right, have their own dimensions to them. And yet hope is something a little bit different. Um, again, that, that even with evidence that should lead one to be negative and warranted to be down, that one continues to cultivate an optimism, a positivity. Um, and uh, as soon as I told my darling wife, Shoshana, who I know you've all met, that I was going to say something about hope with you all, she immediately quoted Emily Dickinson um, and her poem on hope, <laughs> which says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tunes without the words and never stops at all. And of course, she did that while holding a baby and cleaning a countertop and, and managing me. So it was a great moment that gave me hope also just the other day. And yet, a lack of hope um, can lead one to think that their actions don't matter, right? Our lives don't matter. God forbid that someone have suicidal thoughts or a state of depression that can lead to real harm. But hope doesn't only have to be an emotional exercise. Hope can be factually grounded. Factually grounded that from the meta view of the broad sweep of history, factually things get better. 
things get better. And one can debate that, but one work to point to among many to show that empirically is if you haven't read Steven Pinker's long book, and there's been many arguments against him as well, but Steven Pinker on progress shows how um, the, arc, uh, the arc of history bends towards justice, or in his case in particular, um, that actually um, violence decreases by the century, by the millennia, obviously. Um, and though, even though we're more in touch with violence today, that um, we live in the least violent time period of human history, um, even though the 20th century you know, was, was quite a bloody uh, time period, to say the least. And here, I want to distinguish between three central figures, Hegel, Freud, and Darwin. Because Hegel, Freud, and Darwin, in their vision of progress, said the old idea is killed or dies out in favor of the new idea, right? Literally, the old idea goes extinct. It is wiped out in favor of this new era of revolution. But in Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, in the concept of tzimtzum, of, of um, um, reductionism or retracting, God coexists next to other ideas. There's a dialogical model, as we know in Buber, the I and thou, with the past and present. A, a dialectical relationship between ideas. There's a harmonious back and forth, if you will. Not a violence killing off. It's evolutionary approach to revolution. And so the old coexists with the new. And psychologically, one could say this is true also. We never kill off our past self. Even people who have major um, leaps or gaps in their narrative, um, we never kill off our past self. In fact, a developmentally mature approach would be to hold one's past self as part of oneself, but not fully defining oneself. So too in the world of ideas, we don't kill off a past era. We hold that past era along with the current era. And so when we have data as to how we should be hopeful in our time period, based upon the meta view of history, um, we can hold on to the fears that emerge because Kalal Yisrael is a traumatized people, right? Trauma lasts for seven generations. And um, just looking at the 20th century, not to mention uh, everything that precedes that, there's enough inherited trauma um, that, uh, in fact, has been really, and if there's any second generation folks on the, on the phone, or even third generation, um, many have shared with me how this experience right now actually resembles a lot of what they inherited in terms of trauma. Um, and yet, being optimistic and realistic at the same time, right? To hold paradoxically the realism of what has to happen in moments like this and the optimism of how we take a positive approach to such a challenge. There's a business book out there and you can raise your hand, I'll scan the photos if, if you've read it, called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Anyone read that? Um, okay, I'm scanning, I'm scanning the faces. Okay, some of you, I don't see faces anyways. Um, okay, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And what that book is about, um, in short, is that um, many people say, um, oh, we've had seven great years of business. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's keep doing the same thing. 
But actually, for a business to survive, you have to continue to evolve with the new needs, which is, ought to be obvious. Many people in their, in their years of dating want to do the same thing in their first years of marriage. Or in their first 20 years of marriage, something worked, and it's going to take something different in the next 20 years of marriage. What got you here won't get you there. In fact, humans have to embrace what's in our, so deep in our DNA, our adaptability and our resilience. And in this moment, we see many people res, uh, resisting change, as, as makes sense, and many who are, are, are very quickly adapting. For example, and I don't want to overly critique the ultra-Orthodox world, that's not my goal, with all my respect to that community and all my learning there, but there are certain people who have made legal decisions for that community which have cost so many lives because they didn't want to comply uh, for example, with, with social distancing practices. They didn't believe in that. It was more important to pray, to pray in a minion, in a group. That's just one example of, our, of, our, um, of our, our lack of desire to change and evolve with the moment. And yet hope says we are resilient, we can adapt, and we will. We will do that on an individual level. We'll do that on a small group level, on a communal level. Um, and I see my friend uh, Howard over here um, our, thank, thankfully, our new chair of the Federation Board and, uh, and his work that he's already been doing to, uh, to guide our community. Um, and to think and not only on the group and communal level, but also on the systemic level. How on a systemic level do we continue to evolve? And systems is the right word. If you've ever read any work by Baryam, Yavnir Baryam on complex systems, basically arguing that when something less complex tries to control something more complex, a system collapses, right? But as in medicine and certainly in societies, the more complex needs to be in control. That's a case for, the, for democracy over totalitarianism, um, that the people have to kind of be in charge rather than have tight controls uh, in many ways. Um, and we see today our deep interconnectivity. If we never saw it before, what people called the butterfly effect, or maybe now the bat effect, um, which of course we have to be very cautious not to, not to foster any xenophobia towards Asians or towards Christians, uh, uh, not Christians, excuse me, Chinese folks. Um, when we talk about causes uh, involved here, I just saw today a two-year-old child, uh, Asian American who was, uh, who was beaten. I mean, it's really horrific. The type of horrible xenophobia that can come out in moments of fear. But I want to look at a text here uh, to build off this idea of interconnectivity. If you have access to the chat, it's what would be called um, uh, um, the source from Genesis Rabbah, 13.6. You don't have to look at it. It's pretty easy to listen to. Here we go. So this is a midrash, and it says over there, and this is apropos the, uh, leading up to Easter and to Passover and other holidays in the country. It says in the Midrash, a certain non-Jew, a certain Gentile, asked Rabbi Yehoshua, you have festivals and we have festivals. We do not rejoice when you do. They're not our holidays. And you don't rejoice when we do. When do we rejoice together? When the rain falls. No, so the Midrash here is saying that religious difference and difference in general is good, right? Unity doesn't mean... Um, uh, sameness. We want respect and dignity within difference. We want to value difference. And yet, there is a unity that emerges from that diversity. And how does that emerge, they're arguing here? Not through religious practice. Different faiths, different denominations, different communities will exist, and that's good. 
And yet the pluralism exists when we realize on the, on the level of nature, or at least on the level of nature, how deeply interconnected we are. In this case, the example is rain. On the level of earth, air, water, and indeed our souls, whether you believe in reincarnation, Gilgulim, uh, Gilgulei HaNeshama, as found in the Kabbalah or not, the notion that we are deeply interconnected, that we can mourn together, we can celebrate together. In fact, the Degel Machne Ephraim, a Hasidic source, says the gematria, the numerology for Elohim, for, for Elohim, God, and Hateva, nature, are the same. If you think about that, that nature and God are the same. Now, someone like Spinoza or a pantheist who says nature essentially is God, it's basically the same, um, you know, would love that source. But you don't have to be a pantheist to, uh, to enjoy that. Basically, to understanding, however we understand God or godliness, um, that nature is a vehicle to that. And nature doesn't just mean the forest or the ocean, as beautiful as those can be. And many of us find ourselves more deeply in solitude today in nature. Um, but also um, that nature is also human nature and the nature that we humans are interconnected through, the air that we share, um, the breath that we share together. Now, we're moving towards Pesach. And again, um, ah, somebody, thank you, Ed, for warning me not to touch my face. Every time I touch my face, y'all can help me and you can give me a little ding over there reminding me that I do that. I've been trying to use my pen, but I don't know if that's better either. So, um, but I, uh, uh, I, I have more sympathy for those folks that everyone makes fun of on the news, uh, constantly touching their face. <laughs> so anyways, we are moving towards Pesach. We're moving towards Pesach. I don't have to remind you all that. You know that. A Pesach very different than ones in the past, a Passover. Um, and yet I want to say a few things about that, because as I learned from my friend Rabbi Dina Nyman, there's quite a number of messages here that have to do with faith. First of all, with hope. First of all, Yocheved, Yocheved, Moshe's mother, Moses' mom, puts Moshe in the basket. I mean, this moment is such a moment of hope for the future, right? Putting this baby in the basket in hopes of what will become of his future, of the world's future. In fact, one might argue that having children or celebrating the birth of a grandchild is one of the greatest acts of resistance, greatest acts of hope or of faith in a future to choose to bring children into the world, right, is a, is a testament uh, to our belief, to our belief in the future, to our hope for what can be. Not only Yocheved, Moshe's mother, Miriam, Moshe's sister, watches out for him. The, the Midrashim, the sources talk about how she continues to watch him closely from a distance as he emerges within the Egyptian kingdom. And, and even before that, down the Nile River, holds hope. But here's my favorite example, friends. Miriam, Moses' sister, says, yes, Stan, I love it. Gamza Latova. Gamza Latova. This too is for the good. Let's come back to this point. Um, that Miriam, the, the Midrash says, everyone is getting ready to leave Egypt. They're getting ready. They got to go so fast. They can't break, bake challah. They can't bake their challah. They got to make their matzo. We know the story. They're going so fast. They can't even bring their, their stuff, whatever stuff they have as slaves. But what does Miriam pack? Miriam packs her bags with timbrels and instruments because she has the hope or the faith, whatever we want to call it, that not only will they get out of Egypt, not only will they get to the sea, not only will they cross the sea, but the moment will emerge where they can rejoice in liberation. When we will be on the other side of a pandemic 
and able to mourn and, and, and handle the trauma that we've come through, but also able to, to celebrate together. Again, at Passover, we drop the wine or the grape juice drops out. Y'all remember why? Well, one of the common sources we share there is we're mourning for the deaths of the Egyptians in the sea, right? I mean, how amazing is that? Our enemies who slaved us and beat us, we continue to mourn their death in the, in the, in the drowning of the sea. That's why we drop out a few drops of mourning. Or traditionally, Hallel, those who recite Hallel, we have a half Hallel instead of a full Hallel because of those deaths, it says, right? I mean, it's, an, it's a profound way to think of enemies, right? That even though um, we may have some distaste or even hate for an enemy and self-protection against an enemy, nonetheless, they are lives, they are souls, they're God's creations. And even there, we attempt to mourn their passing. So too, this year, we can think as we drop, drops out, um, that Simchat Yom, uh, Yom Tov, the joy of the holiday is diminished. Maybe we feel healthy, maybe we feel safe, maybe so, social isolation in some ways is good for ourselves and our family. And yet we know the people who, are, who have died, over 4,000 in America, um, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I check, I, I'm just addicted. I, I shouldn't be, uh, but checking the numbers around the world, the 40, over 46,000 deaths globally, almost a million cases now. Uh, and, and we look at that um, because each number, I mean, we talk about 6 million in the Holocaust, each person, these numbers are so huge. Each, each person has their own dignity. We'll come back to this point. We'll come back to this point. Anyways, Miriam packs her instruments. And that is part of our challenge today both to do what we need to do in this moment as medical professionals are, are wisely advising us to do, and also to prepare ourselves for a future. Not only to, you know, to think of the Jewish community, for example, of what does the community need now, but how will we recover in three months from now, in six months, in two years from now, in a world where all of our communal habits and routines have been broken. All of the connections we knew have, have changed. Um, and that's a real challenge. And so Miriam teaches us, pack your instruments. Yes, you got a long way to journey. You got a journey out of the darkness of Egypt. You got a journey through, past the soldiers chasing you, through the sea of miracles. And yet, always remember you will be on the other side. And so we'll come back to this point in just a minute. But Batya, Batya names Moshe. Batya, the uh, daughter of, of Pharaoh. The daughter of Pharaoh. She names him Moshe, not Mashui. Mashui would be, I drew him out. I drew, why wouldn't she call him that? She drew him out of the water. I drew this baby out of the water. But rather, she calls him Moshe, which means the one who draws others out. One who draws others out. This will be Moshe's strength to facilitate for the possibility of others' freedom. The Sforno, the classical commentator, says over there that this was Batya's mandate to Moshe. She had a baby and said, just like you were drawn out of the water, so too you will draw others out, right? That part of our hope is um, to allow others to draw us out of the water in ways that we need and to draw others out as well. When we're at the Seder, it's an interesting juxtaposition of the spring and the salt water, the marur and the, and the, and the haroset. The haroset, of course, represents the, the bitter bricks and tears right, of those who suffer, in, including ourselves. But also within the haroset is the sweet apples, the hope that emerges within the bitterness, 
right? We eat this charoset and you taste both the bitterness or, and with the maror, you taste the bitterness and you taste the sweetness to live in the paradox of human history and of the human moment. The plague of darkness, makat choshech, makat choshech, the plague of darkness, this ninth plague right next to the plague of death, right? And which shouldn't be taken lightly because we know mental illness, we know how serious mental illness is. And, uh, and how quickly it can lead to um, really destructive, uh, self-destructive behaviors or, or, or of others uh, and suicidal behavior. And yet what they say over in, what, they, what the Torah says over there about the plague of darkness is nobody left their place anymore and they couldn't see each other. Now, one of the concerns that emerges in, in social isolation and social distancing is that we actually diminish our capacity for empathy even greater, right? As, as many hear me say, because I try to say it every day, a University of Michigan study recently showed that in the last few decades in, in America, the capacity for empathy dropped 40%, 40%, right? It is harder to understand someone different than ourselves in this era for lots of reasons, lots of reasons, but one of the most common reasons given, certainly not to be, uh, exhaustive, is that we look at screens more than eyeballs. And how more true is that in our own era, that we can't, um, we can't um, hug each other in the ways we normally do, or see each other eye to eye in the way we oftentimes do. And so in the plague of darkness, that just before the plague of death, this is the breakdown of empathy, where the people can't even see each other anymore. It's a social distancing that leads to anger. We're so angry at people who are distancing different than ourselves. We shame people who are dealing with this moment different than ourselves. We allow for xenophobia to creep in, right, um, against others, um, as we already mentioned, Asian Americans, um, or people who are undocumented, who um, are viewed as kind of wandering around, spreading, um, spreading, spreading harm. And yet, we are asked to sing Shiratayam. Shiratayam, the song of the sea. Go back to Miriam. The splitting of the sea is the huge miracle. It's the huge miracle, right, that we can have hope in. But what's important to remember as well is that there are also small invisible, invisible miracles that are always happening. We don't have to wait for the huge miracles, the cures, the, the societal stability, those who are invested in the market and looking for stability there, less volatility, but little miracles that are happening all around us. Now, when I talk about miracles, I always pluralistically want to give room both to the mystics and the rationalists among us, the mystics among us who believe God is in control of the world at every moment. God is constantly... Um, uh, allowing our heart to beat, or allowing the sun to rise, allowing our breath to work. And the moment God removes that control, literally every dimension of existence is miraculous from this theology. And the rationalist view of, of miracles, that actually divine intervention is built into nature, um, that there is no break from nature, um, but everything is within nature. Um, and yet there is still divine presence or divine plan that is present there as well. And as, uh, as my friend Stan here recently shared from me, uh, shared with me a, a nice clip from Rabbi Ed Feinstein, um, he charges us to go out and be angels for others, 
to be angels for others, to, to be miracle workers for others. And those are small. The hope and faith involved there is to say, I don't know what little actions do, but I have a faith, I have a hope that little acts um, really matter in the world. Little bits of light dispel a lot of darkness. And so we say Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea, because we imagine ourselves on the other side of the rough waters. This will open up. This sea of turmoil will open up and together we will be on the other side. In moments where it looks like it can't get worse and it gets worse, financially, unemployment, right? Fear, xenophobia, death, um, a, a lack of leadership on certain levels of government, um, poor judgment on certain levels of, of, of government. We hold that fear, which I don't think we should believe anyone in my view who says, don't be afraid. I think we should be afraid, but we should control that fear. We should hold that fear rather than let it hold us. Hold that fear and then allow there to be a huge space of hope that we get from others and cultivate ourselves through this song of the sea that we have a long way to go to get through that sea, but we will be on the other side because that is the arc of history. And it says there in Deuteronomy 16.3 that detailing how we left Egypt, we left in haste as fast as we could, relating to how quickly the virus spreads. If you don't go, you got to move. How quickly our assessment of the situation changes. And in this moment, there's the epic clash of the Israelites and Paro of Pharaoh. And we have the option of which side will we be on. The, the close-hearted, the close-hearted oppressive side of pure self-interest, or the side that allows our heart to stay open, our, the heart of hope, the heart of resilience, the heart of adaptability, the heart of a faith, however you understand this, this, this term we keep coming back to, that we can leave Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Egypt, which comes from Tsar, Tsar can mean pain. It's, it's a narrow place. It's a place we're trapped in. It's a dark place. We've all been in dark places in our own depression or in our own physical confinement. Perhaps we experience that now or in our own mental stuckness, if you will, in a dark place. That is Mitzrayim, the place where we can't see a tunnel out, when we can't see any way out of this mess. And yet one of the people I think of, and this might be natural for a lot of Hevra here, a lot of friends here, is um, to think of Anne Frank. When I think of um, those of us who are stuck with babies in the house, uh, which is really challenging, or are stuck with Netflix, or are stuck with our computers, or whatever we're stuck with. I see some of you are at the ocean. I love you. I love you, you folks who are at the ocean. I also uh, totally resent your, your screens right now of the ocean. Um, no, with total love, with total love. I'm loving the ocean. But I think of Anne Frank because Anne Frank was not at her computer in front of her fridge with her Amazon deliveries um, and her Netflix, if we have the privilege to have those things. She was behind, we all know who she was, the German-born Dutch Jewish 13-year-old girl um, hiding behind a bookcase. That she wrote her diary behind a bookcase in the dark, in solitude. And I think of Anne Frank and what it means to cultivate hope. And I share just a few of her words. 
I keep my ideals because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. How in the world do you live in Nazi Germany behind a bookcase as a young girl, desperately seeking to fulfill her dreams, even writing about boys and girls that she would love to kiss, um, and yet continue to keep her hope, keep her hope alive? She writes how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Those of us who feel like we can't be of service to others right now, how do I be of service? And yet hiding behind a bookcase, she sees moments as of an opportunity. She writes, think of all the beauty still left around you and be happy. She writes, whoever is happy will make others happy too. She writes, I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. She writes, no one has ever become poor by giving, right? Even in our, our self-concern, our self-protection, in our acts of giving, we're not diminished. She writes, lastly, we all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different and yet the same, the same, our interconnectivity, what we have in common. And so here I'll, I'll share a very traditionalist uh, point in prayer, but for those who have the practice of praying the Amidah, the Shemona Esrei, uh, the 19, it's called the 18, but it's later added to be the 19 blessings. The tradition is to recite the blessing Ga'al Yisrael before the Amidah. They say you have to connect those two, redemption and your daily prayer, because you can't enter prayer before stoking the coals of hope. We can't enter a state of prayer until we remind ourselves that there is light within us. That's kind of like the Baal Shem Tov teaching that you can't profess a love for God until you feel love for those around you. God's not interested in that kind of love, whatever that God is. So too, we can't look to God for hope until we ourselves have cultivated that. Now, going back to the numbers, and I'm, I continue to see your comments here on the side, and I think Stan's point I want to come back to, which is really important, Gamzelatova. This is a phrase, if you're not familiar with, this too is for the good, also connected to Gamze Yavor, this too will pass. We, we say Gamze Yavor both to people in moments of joy and in moments of darkness. What do we do as the very last act of a wedding? We break stuff. We break a glass. Say, even in your pinnacle of joy in this moment, remember their suffering. But so too in your worst suffering, remember the light out there. Remember the goodness out there. So Gamze Yavor, every moment will pass. Nothing remains the same. Um, in fact, we say in the, in those who say the, the, the blessing upon waking up in the morning, oh my goodness, I'm alive. I have a new life. I've been granted the gift of life today. What did I do to deserve that? What's my opportunity in this day today to use that opportunity, right? We call their God living and yet established, stagnant and yet evolving. A God that does not change and yet paradoxically changes. So too, that's us. There's a part of us that is grounded, that is rooted in our character, in our narrative, in our history, in our community, in our family, in our, in our selfhood, and yet a part of us that is constantly evolving and changing. And to hold both of those, to hold on tightly to the parts that we dare not let change about us, and yet also to let go of those parts that, that do indeed need to change. Um, and, um, and to continue to hold on to the hope that we can do that together. The value of one life. If you were successful at pulling open the sources on the side, this is the source from Gittin, the Talmud Gittin. 
And um, again, don't stress uh, about finding it in the chat. If you can't find it, I'll read it slowly. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the great sages in the first century of the common era, um, of course, a time of great turmoil, witnessed the Romans destroy Yerushalayim. They destroyed Jerusalem, massacring the Jews, burning down the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, and ending Jewish sovereignty. Really, we can't imagine anything like this. Um, I mean, the, the Shoah is the closest thing we can imagine to it. Um, but even there, we already had um, uh, safety in the diaspora, where there was such a centrality of, of existence. Um, uh, it's, it's quite hard to fathom. And so the Roman general, Vespasian, granted Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai three requests. You get three wishes, you know, like, like the genie in Aladdin. I know just because my kids make me listen to Aladdin every time we're in the car. Uh, <laughs> and so three requests. And he says, first... I want to save the Torah. How does he save the Torah? He establishes Yavne. He sets up an academy for learning, a valley bait midrash, if you will. He sets up VBM in Yavne. He says, we need a place where adults can learn. We need a place where we can come together and talk about ideas, about to disagree and debate and learn, learn sources. Oh, so he gets it. He gets Yavne. Secondly, was... Um, uh, to save the descendants of Rabban Gamliel. He viewed Rabban Gamliel as very important in his family. But lastly, his third request, and by, he could have said, let us keep the temple. Let us stay in Jerusalem. He didn't make such a request. He said, medical care for my friend Rav Tzadok. I saw Rav Tzadok face to face, and he's very sick. He needs medical attention. The guy has three requests. Some of them are grandiose, but one is about one life. And no matter how much we care about society and systemic changes, the community and communal changes, our family and familial changes, and ourselves, we are reminded that what is central to Jewish thought is never to be purely utilitarian. I don't want to call it deontology, as Immanuel Kant calls it, because it's more than that, and it's different than that but the value of one life, right? The value to advocate for one person. As we say in the Talmud, and actually it says in the Quran as well, a nice thing to share with our Muslim sisters and brothers, to save one life is to save a world. To save one life is to save a world. That yes, we have to think systemically right now, but we have to also think collectively. Now there's a really cool Torah on how in looking at the face of another, we can see the value of one life. I'm sure there's many folks on the phone, uh, on the call who are theists. God is central in your life. And I also want to embrace our humanist friends, those who don't love or maybe can bear or not bear the language of God as much, but view Judaism primarily as a humanistic ethos or tradition rather than a theological one. Um, and so however you understand God, mystically, rationally, metaphorically, this is a Torah, and there is a source on the side if you've been successful at accessing them. Otherwise, I'll read it very slowly. That comes from um, Rav Mendel of Romanov and retold by his student Rav Naftali Tzvi Horowitz. And it is translated by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, um, who doesn't teach Torah anymore. He just does art in San Francisco. But we had him at VBM a few years ago when he was still teaching Torah. And here's the translation. I once heard from the mouth of my revered master and teacher, Rabbi Mendel Remenov, 
May his memory be a blessing. It is possible, he taught, that at Sinai, we heard nothing from the mouth of God other than the letter Aleph of the first utterance, right? The idea at Sinai is the Ten Commandments were revealed, right? But some say, not all ten, just one. Some say, just the first word. But what does he say? Based on an earlier Midrashic passage, just the letter Aleph, right? Anochi, I am Hashem, right? Just this letter Aleph of the first utterance. I, Anochi, am the Lord your God. Oh, beautiful, how beautiful are the words from the mouth of the sage. We can now also understand the apparent contradiction between the passages in Deuteronomy. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. And the other passage in Deuteronomy, you saw no image when the Lord your God spoke to you at, at Horeb from out of the fire. There was nothing that could be seen but a voice. They saw the sounds. They saw the sounds. It is possible to explain this in the light of a teaching by our sages in Psalms. I set the Lord before me continually, it says in Psalms. They say that this verse represents a great principle of the Torah. One might think they would have said that serving God or something similar was a great principle, he writes. It becomes clear when we read it in light of a tradition in our, in our Musar, our ethical literature. He continues, there we learn that the Shem HaMeforash, the awesome name of God, the yud ke vav the four-letter name itself actually hints at the letter Aleph. Because the letter Aleph itself is constructed of two-letter yuds, which are the tenth letter of the alphabet, joined with the letter Vav, the sixth letter, joining them in the middle. So you can, you can think about that math. That adds up to 26. The four-letter name of God, same. Aleph represents the same as God's name. This in turn hints at the face of a human being. Think about this, the face of a human being. The two eyes resemble two letter yuds, and a nose between them looks like a letter vav. In other words, on every human face, there is the letter aleph. And just this is the meaning of Genesis. In the image of God, God created Adam, the first person. And this facial aleph engraved on every person has the same numerical equivalent, 26, as God's most awesome name, yud and vav We also know, last paragraph, we also know that there's a kind of, there, there's a kind of strangeness and awesomeness surrounding every person, a grandiosity, a kind of divine light, just as in holiness, we are radiant. And this is the reason we are bidden to continually keep the image of God ever before our faces. For indeed, the seal of the Holy One is literally on our faces, evoking the shape of the name of the Creator. Chavra, I think this is an awesome Torah for us to think about. However we think about God, that the name of God and the revelation of Sinai happens every time we encounter a human face. We see the two yuds of the eyes, the vav of the nose, and that creates the 26th, the name of God. And that is God that we are experiencing in a Buber fashion, in Emmanuel Levinas fashion. That is the face of God. That is Sinai. Sinai did not happen historically. Har Sinai, the revelation of the voice of God, happens in looking at the face of another, a spiritual revelation, an ethical awakening that happens in that moment. The value of one life. The value of one life. And that also happens, we have to remember, especially in isolation, when we look in the mirror. When we look in the mirror, 
We don't see a young face or an old face, a face that we see is beautiful or not beautiful, right? We don't see um, graying hairs or a bald head or, or, um, or our parents, part of our parents or parts of our children. What we see first and foremost is a God's revelation of the va- dignity and infinite value of life. What we see when we look into the mirror. And so, um, in fact, this moment actually is very similar to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, this period of where the tradition says we should intentionally have social distance. We should intentionally socially distance ourselves. And yet in Lamentations, in the book of Lamentations, in Eicha, it says that that morning that comes in isolation and desolation actually is where hope is found. Tisha B'Av is the source of hope in the, in, the, in the calendar. Here's what it says. If you had this source on the side successfully, use it. Otherwise, I'll read slowly. Let the people sit alone and keep silence because God has laid it upon them. Let them put their mouth in the dust. If so, if so be there, be, there may be hope if they do such. Let them offer their cheek to the smiter. Let them be surfeited with mockery. It seems to indicate here that the forced isolation itself we see in Eichan Lamentations is needed and serves as the foundation of hope. That leaning into degradation and into, into abuse in, in, such, in such extreme cases, in, in this way is also the foundation of hope. And if you want to see more on that, look at the Talmudic passage in Chagiga 4b in 4b, that actually we have historical precedents for what it means to intentionally isolate ourselves. And within the depression and the sadness and the loneliness that emerges or can emerge in such a state, that that can be the foundation of hope from within that darkness, right? Because we continue to to remember what is waiting on the other side of the sea. Now, if you have this source, I think this will be the last source that I, I pull externally. And again, I want to invite folks to write on the side, Michael, thank you for that. To look in a year or two on how we've rebuilt the world, it will not be the same. That's a great point. Um, that it's in Talmud, in the Talmud of Brachot 10a. Here's what it says over here. What did the Holy One of, who was blessed do? God brought suffering on Chizkiyahu and said to Yeshayahu, go visit the sick person, or in our case, FaceTime them or Skype them or call them. As the scripture says, in those days, Chizkiyahu fell deathly ill. And Yeshayahu ben Amutz, the prophet, came to him and said to him, So said God, put your house in order, for you are dying and you will not live. Which, by the way, friends, the, 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 the thing I just can't handle. I mean, a lot of this, it's all so hard to handle. But, um, and maybe if you have, some of you have been at, this, been at this, but people dying alone to me is just the worst of the worst. Those who are watching them from screens or from um, outside the glass, that, that no one should ever uh, die alone. Um, Mother Teresa took it upon herself in her life as, as countless social workers and, and doctors and clergy and chaplains have to, to uh, not, not, not allow people in her midst to die alone. Anyways, back to the Talmud. What is the meaning of you are dying and you will not live? You are dying in this world and you will not live in the coming world. Chizkiyahu says to Yeshayahu, what is all this? Yeshayahu said to him, because you have not engaged in procreation, peru or vu. 
Chizkiyahu said to him, that's because I saw through holy inspiration that I would have bad descendants. I stopped having kids. I had prophecy that they would, they would bring death to the world. Yeshayahu, um, we named our son Shia after him, the prophet Isaiah, said to him, what have you to do with those secrets of the merciful? What do you know about those secrets of God? What are you commanded to do? You must do. Forget the prophecy. Do what you must do in times of uncertainty. And let what is acceptable before the Holy One who is blessed happen, Chizkiyahu said to him. Now give me your daughter. Perhaps our combined merit will be effective and I will have good descendants, he says. Yeshiyahu said to him, the decree regarding you has already been decreed, Chizkiyahu says back to him. The decree, excuse me, Ben Amot's end your prophecy and leave. I know this is tricky to follow if you're not reading it. This is my tradition from my grandfather's house. Even if a sharp sword is resting on a person's neck, it, it looks inevitable we're all going to die. A person should not keep himself from asking for mercy. This is the key line here. It, it gets repeated. Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar both said, even if a sharp sword is resting on a person's neck, a person should not keep himself, themselves, from asking for mercy. And then here they move uh, towards hate, hope that is interconnected with faith. Though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. I will put my hope in God. So in this Talmudic passage, we see, um, and this is also the halakha, the Jewish tradition, that says we can pray for healing for those who have been diagnosed um, um, uh, for, uh, for uh, um, uh, th those who have, um, have a, an, an, an inevitable fatal conclusion uh, to their narrative. Um, we could continue to pray for healing. That doesn't mean we shouldn't um, allow for people to die in ways that would be morally responsible. Um, but actually, that we should continue to pray for mercy and for healing even within the darkest times and for ourselves. And this is where I want to share something that may seem like the opposite of hope, but I mean the opposite. And that is, and I think this might sound not Jewish, but I, I believe it really is, that each of us should prepare for death. We should prepare for death. We should prepare for death legally, but also spiritually. We should prepare for death legally, as I'm sure everyone has, by, by taking care of our wills and our finances, giving our medical wishes to family members um, and, our, and, our, and, our, and our legal wishes, having those documented well, um, and uh, having a living will, or making sure our values stay alive uh, um, to those who uh, we love and who love us. But also spiritually, we should prepare for our deaths. Um, and our inevitable impermanence in this world. But at the same time, we need to fight for life. We, this is the paradox of Jewish teachings, I, as I read it. We fight for life while we prepare to die, right? I mean, what a narcissism that emerges that for those who think they won't be touched by pandemics. We prepare ourselves for, uh, to receive this. Um, even taking all precautions. We prepare ourselves to die inevitably one way or another. As we say in the High Holiday, high holiday Liturgy, um, who shall die by sword or who shall die by flood or by famine, right? We know by one way or another we'll go. We're not in control of that. And yet David Brooks, in his book on character, if you read it, based on Rabbi Soloveitchik, writes, we need to transition our society 
from um, resume virtues to eulogy virtues. We have a society that is emerged uh, uh, obsessed with resume virtues. How do I look really impressive with degrees or with books or with titles or with roles I have in the community? Not to diminish those things. We need expertise. We need learning, right? It's not bad to have accomplishments, right? But those are always secondary to a culture that celebrates eulogy virtues, the things that really matter upon our death, the things that loved ones will say about us, which is not, they work so hard in the office, right? They, did, they had this great degree. I mean, it's really tragic if all someone has to say in a eulogy is talk about degrees and how hard someone worked in the workplace as compared to how hard someone works to support family or, or eulogy virtues about how one loves, how one gives, how one sacrifices, how one leads in times of uncertainty. Um, the, and more, more importantly, um, as poets have pointed out, how one makes you feel more than things they may have even said or done. And yes, thank you for that point advanced directives and ethical wills as well. And Judy Schaffert, thank you. They are needed more than ever. It gives us a sense of purpose to let our families and medical people know what we value. Yes, love that. Thank you the, uh, in regards to ethical wills. And so this is a time of uncertainty. So what do we do with uncertainty? And, and here um, I think is where we double down on living compassionately and courageously with our integrity. However we root our integrity, we double down on what it means to live with compassion and courage in uncertain times. And how do we do that? We let go of controlling outcomes, right? You know, it's funny. I, in, in organizational work, as many of you know or have experience with, we constantly have to fi fill out metrics, our metrics to foundations. Oh, what did you intend to do with this grant? And show us how you achieved that right? How many people did you actually get in the room and what type of change was actually observed, right? And we have to try to control these kind of outcomes and it's really kind of very difficult. Um, and, and yet um, there's other parts of our, of our life where we have to continue to do what's right even when we have very little control over how that will end up. Um, and so um, um, this chance to double down. Now hope might be the wrong word, it might be that actually, instead of thinking of in the language of hope, we need to th make real choices, make real choices at times like this. And the right word might be to intend. What are my intentions rather than my hopes? In Hebrew, we call this kavanah. Because tikva, hope, is not such a uh, traditional word in our, in our sources. But kavanah means each day, not just what am I going to hope for, but what intentions do I want to put into the world? What do I want to put in place? What choices are in my control to make today? And how can I make them from my deepest place of integrity? And what are things that I have little or very little control over that I need to let go of? And this is uvachartabachayim. It says uvachartabachayim. Choose life. Choose life. That at the very least, we choose our own life. We choose the life of those around us. Thank you, Nancy, for this point. The only outcome I can attempt to control is that at the end of this period, I will have a sense that I did the very best I could. I helped others. I used my time to study and learn, celebrate all the little miracles of the day, and put in place ideas and plans for when we build our new world. Yes, I love it. I love it. And um, friends, it is so easy to feel entitled. 
um, especially in our relationships, that rather than think of the people who we might be confined with, if we're blessed to be confined with someone, many uh, on this call I know are, are, are more isolated um, and, and are more alone. Um, uh, but, but in whatever relationships we are closest with, rather than focus on the resentments and the entitlements that we have, to constantly go through the daily exercise size of celebrating the small or large things that those people do for us in our lives, if not tangibly or daily um, in the abstract form. And so there is wisdom and spiritual power to, to accepting help, accepting help literally and accepting help, reaching out, and I extend myself to that. If you have things you need, please let us know, let me know ways that, um, that we can be helpful. Um, and, and, and helpful might be the wrong word. Be in solidarity, be together in it is what I really mean. And um, uh, the power to accepting this, but also the power right now to embrace the Gamza Latova, as Stan said earlier, that there is good here too. Thank you, Sandra. It's important to fill out your census and encourage others. Yes, there are concrete things like that around census, around elections, um, around, I already mentioned, around uh, day schools and uh, the tax credits. There's all kinds of tangible things to do. Feel free to post your examples in the chat here if you have ideas of things people can do. But the chance also to nurture ourselves and our families, to slow down. I would never call this pandemic a gift. It is the furthest thing from a gift. But if there are hidden opportunities in such moments, it is for our world to learn how to slow down, to not just consume and spit everything and every, every person out in a transactional society, but to slow down. You know, Heifetz and Linsky in their works on leadership distinguish between adaptive leadership and technical leadership, adaptive change and technical change. By technical change, that's things that we might not have expertise to do. I know there's many uh, MDs on this call. Um, uh, I, I see my friend, Dr. Fischel, and my friend, Dr. Schoen. There's many other doctors on the call. Um, those who have the technical expertise to enact medical, um, medical change, technical change, legal change, those who are in politics, um, corporate change, and the like. And then there is the adaptive change, which is in some ways more complicated how we evolve to the, to the technical data, how we evolve in this time to take care of each other, to keep one another safe. You know, and that also accounts for slowing down. One of my friends uses the analogy of the surfboard, that um, you're really, um, uh, it's really foolish if you're a surfer to not paddle really hard when the wave is coming. You got to prepare for the wave, right? But it's also really foolish to paddle hard when there's no wave at all. That's a time to sit on the surfboard and enjoy, enjoy the scene, enjoy, enjoy the, the calmness of the waters. So too, there's a time to paddle like hell and there's a time to rest calmly on the waters. And many folks have trouble speeding up um, for various reasons. And many of us, uh, certainly myself included, have a lot of trouble <laughs> slowing down and calming down. Um, thank God Shabbat saves my life. <laughs> um, you know, um, but we all have our own practices. Um, and if you know, if you know me, and I'm, I, I won't give names, but I see a few other folks on the, on the, in the video as well, the idea of slowing down is, is, uh, is virtually impossible. Now, the, the, um, I'm going to go a few more minutes, uh, a few more minutes here, but again, continue to post your thoughts or, or questions on the side. Um, the Nativo Shalom, the Nativo Shalom, a Hasidic thinker of the 20th century, distinguishes between uh, two different types of trust, uh, bitachon. 
And he draws upon the, the Exodus story here um, to distinguish these two types of trust. The first is Yetziat Mitzrayim, the leaving from Egypt. Here he says, we give up control. We learn how to give up control and be patient. In the, in the Talmud, this is called Shev Altase. Sit still, just wait. Things will change. Sit still and relax. Have the zisfleisch to sit still and relax for your, for your big moment because there's going to be a moment where you're just going to run like hell out of here. Be ready for the moment. But right now, sit and eat, eat your applesauce or your chorosit. But then there's another moment of trust where you don't just trust that the moment will come, but it's the moment he calls Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, where you rise up and you act in situations of uncertainty with courage and boldness, right? This is called kum va'ase. Shev va'altase says, sit still, don't do anything. We don't have enough data to know what to do. You need to sit calmly and read a book. Instead of going outside, go inside. Go inside, right? Don't go outside, go inside, right? But then there's another type that says, run like hell, run to the sea. And kum va'ase, run through that ocean, hold on to every person you can on your, on your shoulders, hold them up and get ready to go. The trust to act in times of uncertainty, the, the trust not to act in times of uncertainty and knowing the difference of such moments. Um, thank you, Lori. One blessing of this virus is the force slowing down. Yes, that the, these moments um, for our environment, for our organizations, um, for our own reflection of the ability to slow down and regain perspective in our lives. The constantly, success, um, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to a group of successful people. So the last thing I need to say is a recipe uh, for what I read to be, is to be a recipe for success. But successful organizations and successful people build reflection into their lives. They don't just run. Reflection is built into every therapy session they lead into every client they meet with, into every day's activities, into every relationship. Responsibly, there are, uh, we build reflection into that. Now, Rabbi Akiva, the famous story of Rabbi Akiva on the Temple Mount at the dis destruction, going back to that story. In this case, the Talmud is Makot 24b. Everyone is crying. All they do is cry. You can't blame people for crying and trauma. But Rabbi Akiva is the only one who's laughing. He's laughing. Some of us may be criers in this moment, some of us may be laughers. Some might be doing both. But he finds a reason to rejoice. Going back to what Lori just said. He sees destruction and he sees a rebuilt future. He sees a future that is built upon destruction. Because in fact, that is going back to um, Hegel and Darwin and the Kabbal Kabbalistic view of progress. The notion that um, thesis clashes with antithesis. And in that clash, a synthesis emerges, right? That that's the story of history. There are two opposing clashes of ideology, two opposing forces in the world of love and hate, of health and sickness, and they clash. And in that clash, something new is born, a new, um, 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 a new resilience, um, a new ideology. And so we don't passively let that happen. This is a moment also for us to think about a post-destruction. Nancy writes, if I can make a few masks a day and give them away, I feel a better sense of purpose and connection, even though I live alone. Thank you. I put my sewing machine on my driveway and neighbors and friends give me uh, fabric and elastic. That's beautiful, Nancy. You can reach out to Nancy Dallet here if you want to think about how to do that or other things we can do. Okay. 
last two uh, or three points, and then I'll, I'll wish everyone a good day, but continue to weigh in here. And here's the first. Ellie Wiesel points out that Freud and Herzl, Freud and Herzl lived in the same district in Vienna. They lived in the same district. But he says, thank God that Freud and Herzl never met each other. Why? Because what would happen? Herzl would say, Im tirzu, if you will it. it. It is no dream, right? And Freud would say to Herzl, you have a dream? Oh, you have a dream? Lay down on my couch. <laughs> Lay down on my couch. I'll cure you of your dream, right? Freud would say to Herzl. So thank God they didn't meet because the world seeks to cure us of our dreams. Pandemics seek to cure us of our dreams. There is the work right now of taking care of ourselves and others, but there's also the work of dreaming, of not letting us forget what a rebuilt world can look like. Putting our hope, our hope, excuse me, I keep saying that word, hope, our faith, our trust in what we can build together. And this is the meta mitzvah. Rabbi Nachman says, never despair. The, the meta mitzvah, on top of everything else, never despair. Never think we're only going in one direction downwards. It is forbidden, he says, to despair. And so the Ein Yaakov asks the question, what's the most important verse in the Torah? What's the most important verse in the Torah? And the first three suggestions are brilliant. The first one is Shema Yisrael, monotheism, there's one God. The second suggestion says, love your, faith or your, love your fellow like yourself. Good, one says monotheism, one says ethics. The third answer combines the first two. All human beings are created B'Tselem Elohim. All human beings are created in the image of God. That combines the two because it posits there's godliness and it suggests that that theological conviction has an ethical dimension to it. Because there's godliness, we are responsible to one another. Here comes the fourth verse and the winning verse. Ben Pazi says, you should bring your offering in the morning and you should bring your offering at the end of the day. Ah, now if you know me, I'm not someone who, who is desperate to bring my animal sacrifice back to the temple. Um, I don't think anyone's going to throw virtual tomatoes at me right now for saying I don't dream of a third temple. I don't hold it against you if you're, if you're yearning for it. If you're praying for a third temple, Gazinta 8, it's, it's not where my dream lies. Um, certainly not with animal sacrifice. But what is Ben Pazi saying over there? We are not a bumper sticker religion. You can't say you just believe in God. I'm good. I'm good or you believe in ethics, I'm good, or you believe in some theology of, hu of humans being created in the image of God. If you believe in something powerful, how will you, we live it each day with our integrity? What is the offering we'll bring to the world each morning? What is the offering we'll bring to the world every after afternoon? That is the winning verse. Rabbi Steinzoltz was recently asked, what's the most important, important value in Judaism? His answer, not empathy or love, compassion, all would be beautiful answers. He says, consistency, consistency. Think about that. That actually one of the most important things we can do when we have moral clarity is consistently act upon it each day, even in very little ways. So to think during these coming weeks, months that we are um, living in a different reality of how we will um, continue to operate with consistency. So I want to close with this Barbara, Barbara, thank you. Encourage the powers that, uh, that be to create the vote by mail methods so that all the votes can be counted without endangering voters by forcing them to stand in line. I just read today that the, um, the Postal Service says the bailout doesn't include them. And by June, the Postal Service will have to close their doors because there's not, there's not funding. Now, who knows what's going to happen over there? But what does that mean for the election if people can't mail in a vote? So there's a lot of things to, dis to be concerned about. But also, it, it's insanity to be concerned about things we have no control about. 
right? Right? The things we have control about, let's be concerned about them so that our concern moves to action, compassion and action. The things we have no control about, let's have some spiritual practices to breathe them out, to breathe them out, to allow ourselves to live a little bit more gently. And so I want to close with the song that many of us know from Rebbe Nachman, who says, don't despair. Kol haolam kulo. Kol haolam kulo. Never to have fear. But in this case, I want to just adapt it. Nothing wrong with fear. The problem with fear is when it paralyzes us. We need a fear, hold the fear, and use it and refine it and channel it and move it towards goodness. So kol haolam kulo. Gesher tsar The whole world has an, is like a very narrow bridge. But the center, central thing is to not allow the fear to control us, to paralyze us, to not allow ourselves to live with joy, to live with our deepest compassion and integrity. Mickey Weiss reminds me of the book, God is a Verb. Love that. Ed, I'm not reading your quote because um, it's very kind and it talks about how great VBM is. So thank you for that. Um, but I'll, 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 um, I'll allow others to read that if they want to read that. But thank you, my dear friend, Ed Brownfield. Gesher Tsarmeyod Kohaulam Kulahou Gesher Tsarmeyod Gesher Tsarmeyod I know you're singing with me even though I can't hear you. Oy ve-ha-i-kar, ve-ha-i-kar, lo le-fachet, lo le-fachet klao, ve-ha-i-kar, ve-ha-i-kar, lo le-fachet klao. Friends, I get so much hope from you, from friends who are, are my rocks and pillars in this community, continue to learn together, and most importantly, without my most amazing mother, my hero on this phone, on this video conference, who I'm, I'm so delighted to see and learn with her as well. Have a blessed day. It is great to see you all. Let's keep the hope alive. Let's keep the faith alive. Let's continue to, to bring our compassion into the world. Thank you all so much.